Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. A student asked Master Zhao Zhu, what is the deeply secret mind? Zhao Zhu squeezed her hand. The student said, do you still have this? Zhao Zhu replied, you are the one who has this. A student asked Master Zhao Zhu, what is the deeply secret mind? Zhao squeezed her hand. The student said, do you still have this? And Zhao replied, you are the one who has this. So there was a version of this talk in my mind where I just said that and then I bowed and left. <laughs> so... In your mind, you can just keep repeating it and tune me out if you want. Um, I love the quality of the tangibility of this koan. Um, often the physicality in koans is really abrupt. Someone falls, someone jumps up, someone gets hit. Um, but this is really intimate and really soft. And that one squeeze has so much in it. Uh, one thing is the, the power of silent communication, which I think we've all been deeply touched by in some way this week. Um, it's my favorite part of retreat, and I think we both say that a lot, but um, it really, really is. It's like the main thing, one of the first things that I try to tell people when they ask about retreat who have never been on retreat, and it's just, it's so special to me, the way that we can have these um, meetings and these so full relationships almost, but without any words at all. Um, and it's really hard if you've ever tried to really convey that to people. They wind up being really confused. <laughs> They're like, but you're not talking to each other. I don't understand. Um, there's something about silence that really lets us sink in to this warm, generous, wide heart space that really allows for intimacy um, to rise with greater ease, to share it with greater ease than when we're trying to describe it to each other. Bowing to someone as you walk past, when you give or receive a note, maybe with two hands, 
um, or you sit down next to someone for a meal, it can say so much. Um, the first retreat that we did as um, assistants for Michael, all four of us were there. Me, Rose, Caitlin, and Andrea, which was the only time that that happened, that we all could be on the same retreat like that. Um, and uh, it was beautiful, and there are ways in which it, I struggled because I've always found to be most centered when I have sort of balanced male and female energy close to me. And it was a little bit hard to, to be so close to like, um, like a tight-knit group of all women. Uh, and I remember there was just one day where I was just inside, I was like, I just wish there was a guy in the mentorship so I could have some guy interaction right now. It just, I just needed, I felt like I needed that energy. Um, you know, but we're on the trees. I was just like, okay, through that. I said, right, I just did all the work. Um, but then after that sit, there was lunch. And lunch at that center, the tables were a little bit different than here. There were just three really long um, rectangle tables at Cheap and Mills, which some of you maybe have been to. Um, so you're not in a circle. Um, you're just in this, these long three. There's no outside. Like, so you're all just there. And that retreat, I think most retreats there in general, um, it's really rare for the spots around Michael or the assistants to fill in. Like, they, they really fill in here, which is so nice the way that we all sit together, but it doesn't really happen so much there for some reason. There's usually some spaces. Um, so I sat down and then um, next to my right sat um, one of the men from the retreat. And then to my left sat one of the men to retreat. And then the three spaces across me were like all men. I was just like surrounded, <laughs> um, which doesn't happen at all, but then all of them, like all the men. And like, as it like happened, I just started laughing to myself, right? Because this is just exactly what I was sort of craving. Um, and in no way do I think that they like read my mind or <laughs> saw that on my face. But I also think that there's something really special about the way that we connect and respond to each other when we settle into this space that we can't even really know. But it's, it's we can feel it. Um, Michael said it best when he said, it's easier to tell someone I love you than to sit together and let it happen. Uh, which is exactly what we've been doing here. Uh, and we can remember this in all the moments of our lives, not just when we're in silence and retreat in this beautiful place. Um, language is so important. We talked about my first talk, but so is silence. And we can pay attention more closely to how both of these function in our lives, no matter where we are. Uh, Thomas Merton has like this short poem. When I am liberated by silence, when I am no longer involved in the measuring of my life, but in the living of it, I discover a form of prayer in which there is effectively no distraction and my whole life becomes a prayer. And he uses the word prayer, but we could say practice um, or generosity or peace or prayer. 
his whole life becomes a prayer. There's a line from a novel by Ali Smith that is, winter makes things visible. And I read it and I thought it was beautiful, but I didn't really understand what she was trying to say when I read it. But then uh, later that year in winter, I was um, in a place in upstate New York where I go um, for retreats by myself several times during the year. So I know the place well. And I was hiking up the, the mountains, up the woods, and I turned around. And all of a sudden, I was like, wow, I can really see the lake. Um, because all of the leaves that um, are there through all the other seasons were gone. And the land was carpeted in snow, so it was all white and there were no distractions. And I could just really see all of this larger landscape that normally is hidden when it's not winter. Um, and I think it's the same thing with silence. That silence can make the invisible visible. Whether it's seeing a small spider that you wouldn't have before at your breakfast table, <laughs> um, or noticing whether someone is present or not, whether you're present or not, maybe that someone has more to say, so you're just a little bit silent longer, or how much everyone loves to eat outside in the sun. <laughs> um, silence like winter makes so much visible. Uh, we arrived a day early to set up, and so we were there for a little bit of the end of the leaving process of the previous group, and they were, you know, God, I miss you, here's my number, we have to stay in touch, and you're just doing all those things, and I felt confused by it, and I didn't really realize until yesterday what that was, and it goes something like, but you were only here for five days and you were talking. Like, how are you feeling that connected? <laughs> um, right? uh, I, my yoga teacher training was a month-long retreat. Every day, 30 days, all day long, together. And I didn't feel nearly connected to them as I have felt um, at each and every one of these retreats, from the very first one to this one. Um, there's just something so special to really imprint and treasure. This is a description of the meeting of Katagiri Roshi and Thich Nhat Hanh, their first meeting. Before he became famous, the Buddhist monk, author, and peace activist Thich Nhat Hanh came to the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center to give a Dharma talk. Katagiri Roshi, who was the abbot Zen, met him at the airport. As I watched him get off the plane and come into the airport, I experienced nothing but stillness, Katagiri told us. His voice was filled with awe as he related the story, and he told it over and over again uh, because he was deeply moved. But it was Katagiri's own stillness that enabled him to be touched in such a profound way. That's what happens when we steep ourselves in silence. We recognize it when it blossoms, even in the middle of a bustling international airport. 
In the middle of chaos, the innate joy of the universe is always available. Which is sort of like saying it takes one to know one. <laughs> um, and also we're all going to be in bustling airports or crowded highways or train stations or cities or alive soon. And in the middle of chaos, the innate joy of the universe is always available. You should write that down. <laughs> um, and if we can really practice that and touch on our stillness that we've really saturated in this week, and it's not going to feel the same as it does now, and you shouldn't hold on to that, but you'll have some residue and some flavor of that. And maybe when you're walking around, maybe you can recognize someone who's also in stillness. You know, really sort of notice somebody else, and you can be surprised. Um, and it's hard. Sometimes um, we're walking down the street and things have been happening and our heart is a little bit closed and we don't, we're just not able to be open, but we miss so much that way. Um, this happens to me so much in New York City. <laughs> this is something I think about a lot. Um, and each retreat, it kind of helps me like, work with it a little bit more. We can all remember uh, this a little bit more often, that it's, again, not just about ourselves and our ability to be like, I am in the always available piece right now, <laughs> um, but that when you do that, you can see someone else who maybe also is there and really meet someone. And maybe it's just, you know, sometimes you're walking down the street and there's somebody smiling and you're like, I have no idea why you're smiling. This is not the smiling kind of day, but like, you can actually smile back at them right? and that really can change things. The squeeze also reminds me of the character Setsu, which means embrace and sustain. And this is from the phrasing of the three pure Buddhist precepts in Japanese. Um, and one of them is embrace and sustain all good. The character has both an active and a passive aspect. The character means simultaneously embracing and sustaining and being embraced and sustained which is kind of like a hug, right? Sometimes you are being held and sustained by it. Sometimes you are sustaining and holding up someone else. And sometimes we're holding each other up. Thupten Jinpa Langri um, tells this story. I witnessed the Dalai Lama hug a total stranger once. His Holiness was participating in a seminar on Buddhism and psychopathology in Newport Beach, California, and I was his interpreter. One afternoon, among a small group of people waiting outside the home where the Dalai Lama was staying, a visibly disturbed man shouted out to him. His Holiness walked toward him, and patiently listened as the man ranted about the pointlessness of living. The Dalai Lama then urged the man to think about the good things in his life. 
and the importance of his presence in the lives of his loved ones, as well as all the good things he could do with his life by helping others. Nothing worked. So finally, his holiness stopped talking and gave the man a huge bear hug. (laughs) The man sobbed loudly and became calm and relaxed. So can you imagine trying this with others who are having some dark feelings sweep in or with yourself? Um, And if you didn't catch it, there were sort of four steps that the Dalai Lama tried out. And I'm sure he did not plan them. They were just spontaneously coming from his heart. But um, we need steps, or I need steps. So the first was patiently listen. Um, I always want to start with a hug. Uh, All of the students who practice with me uh, in New York know this really well. Um, It's what I nearly insist we all do before my classes start, whether those are yoga or meditation classes. Uh, um, It's what we all did meeting here. Uh, It's what I do with my friends, my family, and to people I meet for the first time, sometimes to their chagrin. um, I really love hugs, which I actually feel is quite similar to a lot of you because I got a lot of really good hugs the first day. (laughs) You can tell when someone likes hugs. And that's how it sort of generally is with us. We want to start with the hug or the tool or the technique or the teaching, the doing thing. But can we consider the Dalai Lama's example to start with listening patiently, which means you're just taking in what the person is saying and nothing else. Which brings us back to the character Setsu which Reb Anderson breaks down a bit, which has really good practice advice in it. So on the left is the symbol for our hand, conveying the idea of actively giving a hand. And on the right are three symbols for the ear, implying receptively listening. So we might interpret the character Setsu as encouraging us to be three quarters observant and just one quarter actively helping. First, we should receive and understand the situation and then give a hand appropriately. Which is why when the bodhisattva enters a situation, the first thing they do is ask themselves what's needed. (coughs) Number two, think about the good things in life. Not that it makes everything better, right? It's not silver lining the situation. You're like, this is terrible, but look, it's sunny outside for the first time in days. Or, you know, you you have your health or whatever it is. (laughs) Um, But it's subtly reorienting ourselves. Because when someone has that sort of dark sweep or we have that dark sweep, it's like everything is here. And it's pulling back a little bit to be like, don't forget, there's all of this over here as well. Um, we all have a beautiful life. And if that's hard to hear or say to yourself, you should say it to yourself every day. Um, Michael told a story one time, maybe a few times, 
um, about this uh, woman who had recently received the news that she had three months left to live and was walking on her way home through the park. And she passed a second woman who was um, with her baby in a stroller, but who was just having a meltdown. She's like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Like, and just like a little bit crying and just really distraught. And so the first woman asked the second woman, you know, do you need help? What's going on? And um, the first, the second woman says, I lost my phone. <laughs> <laughs> so the first lady, so the second lady, you have a beautiful baby. Right? Your life is so beautiful. Um, so after Michael told that story, he went on to say, it should be someone's job to go around <laughs> and say this to us. Okay? I am so lucky. We are so lucky. Number three, your life matters to other people. Our lives matter to so many people. I think about this a lot whenever I tell my friend Frank that I didn't wear my bicycle helmet that day because the look that he gives me is just tragic. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Um, I think about that every time I have a, a nightmare where I lose my partner. Every time I get so excited, I can barely stand it to see my nieces. Um, and I thought about it a lot and all the amazing words uh, you've shared in the notes and in interviews this week. Um, I'm sure Rose feels the same way. Um, our lives matter so much to others. So how do we keep that close to us? And then the hug. Um, Paul Zach gave a TED Talk about oxytocin, which is um, a now, I'm sure, well-known chemical to people in the body that uh, is part of our experience of love and that it's connected to all sorts of other um, beneficial states of well-being that come when you're in that state, which you're kind of all in now, so I don't need to tell you about it, but, um, and he's studied all different ways to induce, um, the most beneficial, uh, level of oxytocin, and he went into, um, a bunch of them, the one that always sticks in my mind is he made this spray, where you sprayed oxytocin <laughs> up your nose, um, just like right to the source, basically. <laughs> Um, but he said through all of that, the best way that he found to induce the, the best amount of oxytocin was hugging. And he prescribed eight hugs a day. <laughs> so, get on it. Um, and I would encourage not just others and not just physically, but to also... Think about it and experience it. Um, what is your internal hug relationship like? Um, Jill Bolt Taylor, in her book, um, 
my stroke of insight, praises her cells. And it goes something like this. In addition to spending a lot of time conversing with my brain cells, I am having a big love fest with the 50 trillion molecular geniuses making up my body. I unconditionally love my cells with an open heart and grateful mind. Spontaneously throughout the day, I acknowledge their existence and enthusiastically cheer them on. <laughs> right? Can you imagine doing that? Or like, just do it a little bit now. Yeah. Um, I am a wonderful living being capable of beaming my energy into the world only because of them. The squeeze can also be um, a gentle reminder. In one of the commentaries for this koan, the commentator describes getting caught in that first question, uh, what is the deeply secret mind that the student asks the teacher? Um, and she starts thinking about it, you know, she drops the koan into meditation and, and then gets fixated on the word secret. And then secret kind of takes her to like a dark place because Secrets, you know, can do that. And then she describes she could feel Zhaozhu squeeze her hand. And she let that go. She came back to her breath. Um, and we can imagine that maybe that was what was happening uh, in the first place in this koan. That the student was maybe getting a little bit caught by even asking that question. Sort of in the first place. That question that we've heard so many times. And that, um, you know, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma coming to the West? Or what is the great way? Or what does it mean to be a Buddha? So they're like this big question where students like, tell me everything there is to possibly know about like what we're doing here. And the teacher in some way basically says no. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you can't really answer it. Um, you're just going to get caught if you try and do it. And that squeeze maybe in some way was a reminder that she was getting caught and to let it drop. And um, when I read that commentary, I liked that idea of maybe letting this koan sink in enough, that story resonate enough that maybe when I was getting caught, I could feel this gentle squeeze. You know, whether I'm in meditation or I'm in planning minds, uh, walking down the street or in any kind of dead-end route internally, maybe I could kind of feel that gentle squeeze of like, stay here. The squeeze is basically also his answer to the question, because you can't say the answer to that verbally. The squeeze answered that question, but she doesn't get it. Um, so he has to add, you are the one who has this. He has to tell her. Right here, right now. Rose and I have been saying this all week. Um, so I hope you can really hear it and really let it in. Don't look outside yourself. You already know. You already are. We practice because we're already enlightened. It's right here. Don't miss it because you're searching for it. This is a poem by Gary Snyder called How to Know Birds. Um, 
And he's talking about more than just birds. <laughs> As a so how to know birds. The place you're in, the time of year. How they move and where in the meadows, brush, forest, rocks, reeds. Are they hanging out alone or in a group or in little groups? Size, speeds, sorts of flight, quirks. Tail flicks, wing shakes, bobbing. Can you see what they're eating? Calls and songs. Finally, if you get a chance, can you see their colors? Details of plumage. Lines, dots, bars. That will tell you the details you need to come up with a name, but you already know this bird. What needs to be done or not done? What needs to be bought or not bought? Who to trust or not to trust? When to go or to stay? How to hold someone's heart or your own? Put it down, let it go, how you're searching for signs. You already know this bird. You already know. A student asked Master Zhaozhu, what is the deeply secret mind? Zhaozhu squeezes her hand. Do you still have this? You are the one who has this. And so this is also an expression of transmission, right? From the teacher to the student, that movement. With a squeeze, he passes it on to her for her to enact out in the world with her life. In his book, Awaken the World, Michael comes back again and again to this idea that nothing is ever complete, that there's no end point that it starts and then someone else completes it, then it gets completed by another person and again and again and again. He says, yoga is not complete until you practice it. These words are not complete until you read them. One does not finish a piece of music. The audience completes it. Then the critics continue the music in some other form. Likewise, the yoga poses never come to an end. Every morning I return to the breath, and every morning it's brand new. The teachings, the Dharma, how he impacted you specifically. You are the one who has this. You are the one who will continue completing this process, which is never over and goes on even beyond you. And think about that already, like how many of you have told someone about Michael who now listens to Michael, and maybe then even then told someone else about it. Or you're here because you're on the other end of that chain. Dogen. Because Earth Grass, trees, walls, tiles, and pebbles of the world of phenomena in all the ten directions engage in Buddha activity because they all have this. Those who receive the benefits of the wind and the water are inconceivably helped by the Buddha's transformation, splendid and unthinkable, and intimately manifest with enlightenment. 
those who receive the benefits of water and fire widely engage in circulating the Buddhist transformation. Because of this, all those who live with you and speak with you also receive immeasurable Buddha virtue, practice continuously and extensively unfold the endless, unremitting, unthinkable, unnameable Buddha Dharma throughout the entire world of phenomena. Or slightly more simple, by Michael. The value of an action lies completely with itself, even though its effects ripple everywhere. We are the ones, along with the wider community, who decide how we move into this, how we keep continuing. Investigate this deeply for yourself how it can show up in your life. Because that's how we continue this sangha. Rose, Caitlin, Andrea, Sophia and I can show up here. Um, But what makes this work, what allows it to continue is you. Keep practicing. Keep studying the teachings. Keep living the teachings at the center of your life. Keep getting closer to intimacy. Keep building relationships and community. Keep in conversation with your heart, with your body, with your breath, with each other, and with us. I don't know how many steps that is. (laughs) You'll remember them. You do not need to know precisely what is happening or exactly where it is all going. What you need is to recognize the possibilities and challenges offered by the present moment and to embrace them with courage, faith, and hope. Thomas Merton. In the spring, during the meditation teacher training in Toronto, in the afternoon, we had um, movement practice. And there was a guest dance teacher named Val who led it for us. And uh, I really haven't ever had dance classes, so maybe this is standard, but to me it was like just really poetic and interesting images and metaphors about how she was guiding us to move. Like um, we'd all be in a line on one side, and she's like, go to the other side of the room as if you were walking on the moon with 50% atmosphere. <laughs> and you're like, okay. <laughs> I'm just kind of like standing there. We're like, what does that mean? Um, and I guess if you're a dancer, you would just like, they would just go with it. So then she had to, to tell us this teaching um, that I think she said Martha Graham would say to her students which after she gave an instruction, and she would say, start before you're ready. (laughs) Um, So that got us across the room a lot. But Michael really liked that expression, and he'll get an expression. He uses it a lot. So that was one of them. Um, So you are the one who has this, and start before you're ready. Chiho's Calligraphy by David Bugbo. Chiho brushed for me 
three Chinese characters. She sent them to me in the mail. I have her calligraphy framed on the wall in my room above my homemade little altar where I sit every day. The characters from top to bottom say Shu, which means keep or obey, as in obey the teacher. The second one is Ha, which means break, rebel, try things out other than what the teacher said. The third one is Ri which means depart on your own path, go your own way. And so for our last <coughs> evening here, uh, a quote by Norman Fisher. You can go outside, maybe especially at the end of the day, as so many of us do. And look at the sky, you can actually see it. Because your eyes, your brain, your whole body is made to see the sky and feel its beauty. Your heart is made to be melted by the beauty of the sky. Thank you.